Let us pray together. Today, our Father, we shall learn more of your love for your dear Son in its stark contrast to the world's hatred for him. And we shall see that still amid the darkness, Jesus calls us. Jesus still shines out as a beacon to all to hope in him, our only hope. Kindle and deepen our love for Jesus, Lord, into a raging flame that consumes our lives, our hearts, our affections. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All those songs we've been singing today about Jesus calling points to the uh, pattern of Matthew 11 and 12. Uh, Matthew 11 and 12, I remind you, consists of three cycles of three um, showing response to Jesus, troubling responses to Jesus, increasingly so, climaxing in the next cycle that we'll be getting into, Lord willing, next week. And each cycle has this in common. Each cycle has two troubling responses followed by an invitation. Perhaps you remember in chapter 11, first we have John the Baptist's puzzlement and struggle over where the kingdom is and asking whether Jesus was the one they were looking for, whether another would come. And then we have the rejection of the cities, uh, their rejection of Jesus and the mission he'd sent the apostles on. But then that was followed by Jesus' invitation, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Then it starts over again in chapter 12. We've had two conflicts over the Sabbath in verses 1 through 8. Simply his disciples are plucking grain and eating it on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees get all hot and excited over that. And then there is maybe a staged incident in the synagogue as they see the man with a withered, paralyzed hand, and they know Jesus is going to want to heal him, and they're looking for something to accuse him for. Well, there's two clashes And then that brings us to today's section, which is in the form of an invitation, that even amid the hostility and the rejection of man, God still reaches out with the gospel. And the darker man's sin and hatred get, the brighter is the light of Jesus and his gospel. We'll see that today, and particularly how God's spotlight falls on the Lord Jesus. So let's uh, let's get into this. And we saw last week, verses... uh, 13 and 14, we'll just read the end of uh, last week's episode, let's say, last week on the actual Jesus. Then he says to the man, stretch out your hand, and he stretched it out, and it was restored healthy as the other hand. But the Pharisees came out and took counsel together against him in order that they might destroy him. So how is Jesus going to respond to that? Because we read at the beginning of verse 15, but Jesus, because he knew. So he knew what was in their heart. He knew what was motivating them and what they were heading towards. And and I would just point out, as I said last week, the shadow of the cross is looming here. Now that word destroy is uh, more of a general word. Um, If I were paraphrasing it, I might render it this way. I might say in order that they might get rid of him. How isn't specified yet, but one way or another, they need to get him off the stage, away from people's attention, out of the spotlight. They want to get rid of him. They want him to not be a problem anymore. So Jesus knows about this, and what does he do? I want to think about that with you and look at that, because it's very, very instructive. So Roman number one, Jesus' response, verses 15 and 16, we read, well, let's not read it just yet. Let's think about it. Let's think about the situation. We've had these clashes, and Jesus knows what they want to do. That's the situation. Jesus knows that they're going to, they're meeting together to figure out how to destroy him. Jesus has done nothing. Jesus has uh, taught them. He's reached out to them. He's pointed out that they're not following the law themselves. They're not following what they learned from David the king, or from Hosea the prophet, or from the work of the priests, that they make nothing of the fact that he has the power of God there to heal that they don't show the care for a suffering man, that they would show for their own sheep if it fell into the pit on the Sabbath. He's pointed this out to them, and their response is not to think it over, not to humble themselves, not to learn something, and God forbid to change their minds and admit error. Oh, no, no, no. Their response is, well, those are good arguments. We've got to get rid of him. (laughs) We've got to get rid of him. 
Everybody's noticing, everybody's listening. Of course, we're not, and we just need to make him stop being a problem. So, letter B then, what are the possible responses? What might he have done before we look at what he did do? And remember who we're talking about. We're talking about a man who could stop a windstorm with a word and stop choppy waves with a word, the same word. What lay in his power to do if he chose to? Now, before we even look at that, let's remember the principle, number one. The principle we see in Deuteronomy 18, and it's prophecy of the prophet like Moses. Deuteronomy, you could abbreviate it D-E-U-T, period. Chapter 18, and I'm just going to lift out verses 15 and 19. You know this. Yahweh your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. You shall listen to him. God says through Moses, God will raise up a prophet like him, and they're to listen to him. That's God's command. What if they don't? Verse 19, and it will be that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, what? I myself will require it of him. And what does that mean? He's going to answer to me. And what does that mean? God's going to judge him. If somebody doesn't listen to this prophet, like Moses, who speaks the very words of God, God will take it out on him. God will see to that person. Well, Jesus is that prophet. Are they listening to him? I didn't hear you, I'm sorry. I know we lost an hour of sleep. It's terrible. If, if it were my choice, I would just set it back every few months, you know. Pretty soon it'd be pitch black at noon. That's okay. We can deal with that. They live with it in Alaska. We could do that. But get an extra hour of sleep every few months, I, I think that's a win-win. But regardless, you you did say that they did not listen, and I agree with you. They did not listen. So that puts them in this category of people of whom God says, I'll require it of him. You don't listen to my prophet. I'm looking for you. So what could he have done? Well, let's look at the precedents. What what has he done in the past? For instance, uh, to the people in the wilderness at Tibera when they started whining and moaning and complaining. And we know how much God loves it when people whine and moan and complain. What did God do? He burnt them. He sent fire on them and burnt them up. Well, now there's one option. Another, what happened when Korah and his... uh, cohorts rose up in rebellion against the uh, authority of Moses and the leadership of Moses. The ground, as Keith Green sang it, opened up and had them for lunch. The ground opened up and swallowed them, killed them all. That's for them rebelling against the authority of Moses. And here is the greater than Moses, the prophet like Moses, who is greater than Moses. What might God do to them? A third precedent, uh, Elijah living in an age of apostasy. And he gets up and he says, it's not going to rain a drop of rain except by my word. 1 Kings 17.1, and it doesn't. He calls for a drought in judgment. And are these religious leaders apostate? Yes, they certainly are. Yes, they certainly are. Uh, a third, pardon me, a fourth uh, precedent. King Ahaziah sends a, a company of men to capture Elijah the prophet. And what does he do? Calls down fire, it consumes them. He sends another company of men after him. What does Elijah do? Calls down fire that consumes them. There's an option. Think about Elijah's successor, Elisha. What happens when a a group of rowdy, uh, nasty kids make fun of him because of, what was it? Yes, that's right, because he was bald. There was a little more to it than that, but they made fun of him for being bald. And what happened? Two she-bears came out and tore them up, mauled them. Uh, Another same uh, prophet, Elisha, when his servant Gehazi uh, goes to make a little prophet off of Naaman the Syrian, he strikes him with leprosy. So here's just a few things that God has done in the past when people rebel against his word. What could be done here by the man who could stop a storm with a word? What might he have done? Surely he could have topped all of this in what he did. All those things are possible. He could have done all those things. Later he says he could have had a legion of angels uh, if he had just asked for it. What does he do? Well, um, just think about this. Of all the miracles Jesus did, and he was constantly doing miracles, what miracles of judgment did he do? 
The only one I can think of is cursing the fig tree. But on people, I don't think of any. I don't think of any. They're all miracles of mercy and healing and the presence of the kingdom of, the God, of God in him. So we'd better look together, let her see at his actual response. What did he do? All that power, at least in principle at his disposal, the, the, the precedent of history, but we read, but Jesus, because he knew, departed from there. And many crowds followed him, and he healed them all, and he warned them that they not make him a parent. Now, that's interesting. Rather than forcing a confrontation, rather than calling judgment down on their heads, Jesus puts himself someplace else and continues his ministry. He doesn't fight, he doesn't strive, he doesn't call judgment on them at that moment. So, why? Well, God's timing is Jesus' timing. Jesus knows that he's headed for the cross, but on God's timing. And his whole life was about doing God's will in God's way. He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to complete his work, right? And in the garden, he says, not my will, but thine be done. So it wasn't the will of the Father for that confrontation to happen yet. So you say, well, then why didn't he just let God stop them? Now, that would have been in the category of tempting God. Do you remember how Satan tried to get Jesus to do something just like that? He said, throw yourself off the roof of the temple, and God will send his angels to catch you. And how did Jesus respond? Quoting Deuteronomy, you will not tempt the Lord your God. That would have been tempting God. For Jesus to just stay in the face of this mounting opposition when it wasn't God's time for him to go to the cross would have been tempting God. So uh, he didn't do that. Instead, he simply used prudence. He was as wise as a serpent while being harmless as a dove, as he told his messengers to be. And he put himself, so he didn't stop his ministry. He didn't stop his preaching. He didn't stop his healing that made them so mad. He just moved it to another location. He continues to show mercy and power, but he doesn't do it for show or for publicity. Again, many crowds followed him, and he healed them all, just like the charismatics don't. Just like modern faith healers don't. He healed them all. Whatever it was, congenital, visible, physical, he healed them all. He even raised the dead, as we know. This is what he did wherever he went, works of mercy that showed that the kingdom of God was there in him. The powers of the kingdom constantly showing themselves in him, despite the malice of the Pharisees. So uh, many crowds follow him, and he healed them all, and he warned them. It's a very striking word. It's, it, the way we usually translate it is he rebuked them. So he warned them very sharply. Because he knew, perhaps in many cases, that they would not heed his warning. They'd, they'd do it anyway. But he cautioned them. He warned them. He scolded them, as it were, not to make him apparent. And that word apparent, phaneros, means don't make a show of him. Don't put him on display. Don't make a big deal about him. Because making, the, the bigger of a deal he is, the more the conflict is provoked. And that's not the time for it. That's not the time for it to come to a head. He has more to do before he comes to that point. So he tells them don't make them known. And, and the greater reason for that we're about to see in just a moment in this context. But uh, that, that's a question though, isn't it? I mean, he's the son of God. He's there calling people uh, to faith. Why doesn't he want them to make him known? Why doesn't he want them to make uh, a big... He wants us to do that. He wants us to tell everybody about him. He wants us to spread the gospel everywhere. Why doesn't he do it then? Well, first of all, we know that for them to do it would have provoked a premature crisis, a conflict that it wasn't God's time for yet. But let's talk together now about uh, Jesus' mission, Roman numeral two, because that's where the answer lies. It's because of what his mission was at this time. So we need to talk together about Jesus' mission, verses 17 through 21. And I want to say, first of all, how we know what his mission was. We don't know what his mission was by studying history books. We don't know by looking within ourselves and asking for a still small voice of God. We don't know by reasoning and think, asking ourselves what seems to be reasonable. Uh, and I, I have to say all this because countless scores feel free to do just that, to just make up out of whole cloth what they think Jesus came to do. But how we know it, verse 17, 
in order that what was said through Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, saying. In other words, we see this formula so many times in Matthew. What Jesus did, he did because, well, prophecy said that would happen. And and what does it mean that prophecy said that would happen? It means that was God's will. It means that that is what God decreed would happen and God revealed would happen in this case. And so Jesus' actions, and in this case to a degree his inaction, were a result and a fulfillment of prophecy. Now, you say, but I thought, I thought his mission was a mystery. No, no, Jesus' mission was not a mystery. And I remind you, a mystery is something not revealed in the Old Testament. There is a mystery. What's the mystery? I heard somebody whisper, church. That's right. The church is a mystery. The church was not revealed. The gospel, this, this, what we are and are doing right now was not revealed in the Old Testament. But Jesus was, and Jesus' mission was, and this first peaceful mission was revealed in the Old Testament. So that's the way to see and understand uh, what happened. You know, we often say, well, the Jews were expecting a, a, a warlike conquering Messiah because there are, and indeed there are, many prophecies of his coming, conquering the enemies of God and establishing the kingdom of God. True, true, true. But there also were prophecies pointing to, towards a peaceful coming, which culminates in his death for the sins of his people. Now, putting those together before the, uh, before the events, obviously challenged. But Jesus says, you should have seen all this. It was all there. It looks so clear in retrospect but they didn't put it together. And so Matthew says that this is all to fulfill what was said through Isaiah the prophet, saying, now letter B, how God sees Jesus. And, and that is the wonderful thing about this section. I'm sorely tempted to spend the whole sermon on verse 18, but we will look at it in some depths. But this, friends, this, this prophecy shows us how God sees the Lord Jesus Christ and what the intent of his first mission was, his first coming. So let's see this in verse 18, and I just uh, pluck out the first part. Verse 18a, Behold my servant whom I picked, my beloved, in whom my soul takes delight. There's a chiasm in in this verse, in this section, uh, but I'm not going to focus on that. I just want to look at these words with you. I just want to stop with you and look at them one-on-one. And in so doing, we're doing what God tells us to do because what is his first word? What's the first word in verse 18? Behold. And what does that mean? It means stop. Stop what you're doing. Drop what you're doing. One of the most overused words today, I think, is fascinating. Everything's fascinating. Well, if everything were fascinating, nobody would be able to drive cars. Because if something's really fascinating, you drop everything you're doing and it's the only thing you can think about. I I can't tell you how many times I hear commentators, and I think of a couple in particular, who just use that word for it. They use the word to mean mildly interesting, (laughs) but that's not what the word's supposed to mean. It's supposed to mean this just captures your attention. You can't look at anything else. And that's what God wants us to do. He says, look, here's what I want you to look at. And what is it he wants us to look at? His servant. Now this, this, this verse here, it's just, it's, it's so precious, it's so deep, it's so beautiful, it's, it is just packed and redolent with, with fragrant, beautiful meaning and insight into the heart of God, insight into the relationship of the Father and the Son, a message for us as to the worth of the Son. Look at these words. First he says, behold. So he says, stop what you're doing, just whatever you're doing, just stop. Whatever you're thinking about, put it out of your mind for a second here and put your thoughts on my servant. Be truly fascinated with my servant. My servant, he says. Now, it's just a matter of Bible understanding. Let me point out that in Isaiah, he's quoting from Isaiah 41, 42. This is the first of, usually it's counted as four servant passages that point forward to the Lord Jesus. Chapter 42 49, 50, and chapter 52, 13 to 53, 12. These are all servant passages. There may be a fifth in chapter 61, though it doesn't use the word servant. But at least four servant passages. This is the first of them. And just think about this word. It's one word in Hebrew, two words in Greek, or three words in Greek. My servant. My servant. 
So God says this one is one who you can look to and see in him someone who does my will, someone who's committed to my will. In the Lord Jesus is someone who, as I said in John 4, says, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me and to complete his work. And if it's my will or your will, Jesus says, your will be done. He is God's servant. He's the servant of the Lord. That's both his beauty and that's the problem. What do I mean? Well, he's the servant of God. Who's he not the servant of? The religious elite of the day? The, the celebrity culture of the day? The blue checkers of the day? The influencers of the day? The rabbis, rabbinic thought, rabbinic tradition? He wasn't the servant of that. Isn't that the problem we see over and over again? Your disciples, you, you don't hang around who you should hang around with. You don't eat the way like you should. You don't do Sabbath like you should. <gasps> you shouldn't touch that person. <gasps> you shouldn't be with that person. Nee, 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 every time he turns around. Beca- why? Because he's violating God's law? Not ever. Because he's violating their law. Because he's making them look bad. And that's, the, that's their unpardonable sin. We're going to see what God's unpardonable sin is, and it's quite different. But their unpardonable sin is making them look bad, and Jesus seems to do that every time he says something. He's not their servant. That's what they hate them for. That's what they hate him for. But that's what God loves him for. He is his servant. He's God's servant. If you want to know God, you know the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the servant of God. He's not the servant of public opinion. He's not the servant of tradition. He's not the servant of the power structure. He's the servant of God. Look, God says, my servant. But he's not done. He says more. He says, whom I picked. Now, that's striking at first. You think, well, how could he not pick him? Oh, he's speaking, though, of, of God incarnate, of Jesus in his human nature. And as a human being, he's one of millions. He's one of billions. But God picks him out of all of them to be his servant par excellence. The man Christ Jesus, God incarnate. God picks him. He chooses him. Oh, but again, think against the black backdrop of what's going on. Who doesn't pick him? Pharisees, the religious leaders, and all of those who follow them. The cities uh, that had rejected the messengers. They don't pick him. They hear his message, they hear his call, but they don't pick him. The Pharisees don't, the Sadducees don't, the Herodians don't, the power brokers don't. They don't pick him. Ah, but God picks him. And whose choice do you think will win out? Whose choice do you think is the ultimate choice? Of course, it's God's choice. What does Scripture say, though, about Jesus? Don't miss this. What is, in fact, the... the, the um, the fourth, sorry, the third servant song in, in 52 and 13, uh, 53, what does it say of him? He's despised and rejected of men, but God picked him. What does John chapter 1 say? He came to his own things and what? His own people did not receive him. They didn't pick him, but God picked him. God the Father picks him. Out of all and above all, God picks him. So we could just stop right there and reflect on our own hearts. Are we as fascinated with Jesus as God says that we are? Or does everything else in the world always fascinate us more? Do we look to Jesus as the servant of God? Or do we look to the influencers and the culture to find out which way we should go? And do we see Jesus as above all the chosen one? And to us, he's the chosen one. We choose him too. We ratify God's choice. As God has chosen him, we absolutely also choose him as ours. Or do we go with the world's embarrassment and repulsion, revulsion towards Jesus? But there's still more. Behold my servant whom I picked, my beloved. My beloved. God loves Jesus as the reflection of his own character, as the radiance of his glory. God loves him. God loves him without reservation. God loves him from all eternity. God loves him with all his heart. He loves him as as his own self. He loves Jesus. But again, 
the people of the day. They don't love him. They want to destroy him. And they think they win, but they sure don't. But they want him away. They want him gone, but God never wants him gone. God loves him. The the God they say they serve loves the Lord Jesus Christ as they do not. He is despised and rejected of men. And Scripture also says, they hated me without a cause. They hate Jesus, but God the Father loves Jesus. And then this arresting phrase, in whom my soul takes delight. You know how often you read about God having a soul? Very seldom. It's meant to be a striking phrase, an arresting phrase, a way of God trying to say to us, I love him from the very depths of my being. He says, I'm delighted with him from the very chambers of my innermost heart. God the Father tells us this. This is how he sees Jesus. From the very depths of his being, he's delighted in him. He's pleased with him. He's overjoyed at the sight of Jesus. He gives him pleasure like no other. Striking, arresting, but contrast that with men who just find him at, at best annoying, at worst ignorable. He's nothing to men then. He's nothing to men now. Despise doesn't necessarily mean an object of revulsion in itself. Despise also simply means thought little of, belittled, marginalized. No big deal to me. Oh, but God says he's my servant. I picked him. I love him. My very soul delights in him. This is the Father's word about Jesus. So different from man's word. Oh, Beloved, see see in this the Father's love for His Son. There is none He loves like He loves His Son, nor should there be. He loves His Son. He delights in His Son. And what does that teach us? Endless lessons. But let's just pick out a few. Let's start with the principle that we should be braced to see a, a disconnect between the Father's affection and the affection of our world and our natural selves. Luke 16, 15, jot it down. Jesus says to the leaders, you're those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. For, here it is, that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. And vice versa. What men think the most of, God thinks the least of. And what men think the least of, God thinks the most of. And men think the least of Jesus. Now, I I say the real Jesus You go to 15 unbelievers, rabid, foam-flecked, wild-eyed, ankle-biting unbelievers and ask them about Jesus, and at least 13 of them will tell you, oh, they love Jesus. But then you start asking them about this Jesus that they love, and you realize he's nothing like the actual Jesus. He's nothing like the only Jesus who ever lived, died, rose again, and reigns at the Father's right hand. He's a made-up Jesus that they say they love, but the real Jesus they despise. He's very little to them at most. They don't think about him any more than they absolutely have to. And the less, the better. Now, you see, men's values are the opposite of God's values. And it all hinges on Jesus. This is another one of the great burdens of my ministry here. And I just keep looking for different and better ways to say this same thing. That at the heart of everything is Jesus. Anyone who's had much dealing with me about baptism or testimony or anything, know that if, if somebody gives this testimony to me and there's not much Jesus in it, we go on to have a conversation. I, I can think of a person who I think was very, very offended once years back, uh, sometime back, Um, Because the testimony had just about nothing of Jesus in it. And so we talked. And I think the talk, I'm sad, the talk was very offensive to this person. But this is how God sees Jesus. And if we love God, this is how we will see Jesus. And how we see Jesus literally changes everything. Let me tell you how literally I mean that. Think about any point at which we in the world part company. Think about any point 
whether it be the meaning or value of life, or human life, or life itself, uh, the reason we live, what's best in life, what we live for, whether it's the issue of self-image, whether it's sexual issues, uh, the LBGTQ, LSMFT, the whole alphabet of it, uh, whether it be one of those issues, whether it be ethics, whether it be marriage, uh, abortion, whatever it is, all these things at which we point com- part company, we mustn't get talk- caught up in, in the, the, just arguing the ethics and the, the, the details of reasoning of it. We've got to remember that the, really the bottom line why we see it differently is because of how we see Jesus. Can I get an amen? At the heart of everything is how we see Jesus. If Jesus were not to us who he is to God, we should think whatever we want about anything. But at the heart of our way of thinking and living is who Jesus is, and this is who he is. He's the servant of the Lord. He's God's beloved. God's soul delights in him. And so should he be to us. So must he be to us. And to the degree that he is that to us, our thinking and our living reflects that and shows that. But to the degree that our thinking and living doesn't show that, then that's because he doesn't have the place he should in our heart. He doesn't have this place. So to the world, he's a loser. He's an irrelevancy. They do everything they can to blot him out. They want to take him out of Christmas, out of Easter, even off the calendar. It's not A.D. or B.C. anymore. It's, BC, it's a C.E. And, and B.C.E. They just want to erase every thought of Jesus as much as they can. Why? Because God loves him so and they hate God so. And if Jesus is who he says he is, then everything changes for us. We're wrong about the way we think about everything if this is who Jesus really is. So we can't have that. Or we could repent. But that's what we were saying at the close of last week's sermon. The three words that people will not say until the Holy Spirit moves on their hearts. Or What are those three words? I was wrong. Because Jesus is Lord is on the other side of those three words. On the other side of those three words. And God certainly sees him that way. How seeing Christ as God sees him as the heart of everything. And I mean that. I mean that literally. And I mean literally, literally. That's another word that's usually misused. But I mean it literally. It's how we see Jesus. And whether we see him as God sees him, that's at the heart of everything. So, moving on then, let us see how God sees Jesus' mission. And that's in verses 18b through 21. I will put my spirit upon him, and judgment for the Gentiles will he announce. He will not quarrel, nor will he yell, nor will anyone hear his voice in the broad streets. A crushed reed he will not break, and a smoking wick he will not extinguish until whenever he should bring out judgment unto victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. Well, let's first then talk about what Jesus will not do. What he will not do. He will not quarrel, nor will he yell, nor will anyone hear his voice in the broad streets. A crushed reed will he not break, and a smoking wick he will not extinguish. So what does that mean? Well, now, follow me here. What, what did Black Lives Matter do to make their message? They held riots. They torched businesses. They, they charged into restaurants and they interrupted people's meals to force them to say what they wanted them to say. Fire, looting, violence everywhere. What did Hitler do? At first he gave speeches that excited people. He shouted and hollered and, and whipped up their emotions to get uh, followers. Um, and what do we see when an army wants to take a, a country? It, it charges in and overwhelms them and kills the opposition and takes control of the country. Um, and I'm not talking even just about evil things. Israel taking Canaan. They flood in, they kill the opposition, and they take the country over. Or even a candidate running for office to hold rallies. Even a, a, good, a good man for good causes, but he'll hold rallies. He'll get people excited. He'll get them chanting. He'll get them holding signs and going all over the place. Jesus didn't do any of those things. He didn't get people saying, you know, he didn't Give me a J or 
give me a Yoda, <laughs> give me an Ada, give me a Sigma. He didn't say, give me a J, give me an E, give me an S. He didn't do that. He didn't have them hold up signs. He didn't have parades down the streets. Or, or, and uh, with the Pharisees, when they wanted to argue with him, he didn't cause a huge explosion as he could have done. Or as I said earlier, call down these judgments. That wasn't what he was doing. That wasn't what he was about. Why not? Well, in large measure, because he wasn't a candidate running for anything. Now, now, maybe you want to say, he was, and I thought you've said over and over again he was preaching the kingdom of God and calling people to repent. Yes, he was, but he wasn't running for king. What did we just read in verse 18? God says, I picked him. The election's over. It was an electorate of one. There was one voter. It was God the Father, and he picked Jesus. So what was all this? Calling people to repent and become citizens of his kingdom. He wasn't trying to get elected. He wasn't trying to get anybody to, to make him what he wasn't because he already was it. Look, here's the way we need to see it. Who he was wasn't in question. Who they were, who we are, that's what's in question. The judgment wasn't about him. It was about how people would respond. And the judgment fell on them because they did not respond according to truth. They did not see him as God saw him. They did not repent as they were called to repent. And so, this not being a political campaign or a rally or a military effort, not being any of those things, but a proclamation of the presence of Jesus, of of the kingdom of God in Jesus, and a call for people to repent, that's what it was. It wasn't uh, wasn't a campaign. It wasn't a military maneuver. It wasn't any of those things. And so, Jesus did not, Matthew's explaining why Jesus moved away, knowing that where they were, well, because to stay there would have forced a confrontation. And that isn't what Jesus came to do. He didn't come to do that. So that is what Jesus will not do, but what will Jesus do? Well, let's look back and look at verse 18b then. First, God says, I will put my spirit on him. Don't, don't go fast past that. Do you see in, in that little clause, what, what, what doctrine do you see? It starts with a T. That's right, the Trinity. God the Father puts God the Holy Spirit on God the Son incarnate. And judgment for the Gentiles will he announce. Jesus, God incarnate, ministers by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he will announce judgment. Well, what's judgment? Judgment is doing whatever it takes to bring justice, including, including bringing what we call judgment. For the Gentiles. Now, there's an interesting thing. What, what have we just seen? The Jews want to destroy him. And what's the next thing Matthew says? Quoting the... What was that book? Was that, was that the uh, Lord of the Rings? What did he quote from? That's the Old Testament. And what people embrace the Old Testament? Why, it's the Jews. But the Jews are rejecting their own Messiah. And so who's Jesus bringing judgment for? The Gentiles. Well, that's interesting. And we'll see even more about that. Judgment for the Gentiles. The Jews want to judge him, but he'll bring judgment to the Gentiles. He won't quarrel or yell. We talked about that. But let's talk about verse 20 because this is just so striking about Jesus. A crushed reed will he not break. What's a reed? It's a plant that grows in the marsh. It's a hollow little plant. What do you use it for? You could use it for a flute. You could use it for measurement. You could use it as as a pencil. What good is it once it's crushed? No good at all. What do you do with a crushed reed? Throw it away and replace it. It's worth nothing. People don't duct tape them up and keep using them for a number of reasons, including that there was no duct tape. Uh, but no, you, just, you, don't, you don't nurse a crushed reed. It's cheap. It's replaceable. You just get rid of it. And, and what's a smoking wick? Well, that's a, that's a, a, a linen, a, a wick, and a candle that's burnt down to where all... It's not giving light. It's just giving smoke. What do you do? Again, you just throw it out and you replace it. Oh, but, but look at the character of the Messiah. He doesn't break a crushed reed, and he doesn't uh, extinguish a smoking wick. Now, that's um, what you call litotes. When you say he doesn't do these things, you're, you're saying what he does do. He does nurture a crushed reed. He does keep and work with a smoking wick. What does that have to do with anything? Well, it depends on whether you see yourself as a fine, gleaming, perfect instrument 
or whether you see yourself as a crushed reed and a smoking wick. I will say without any unambiguity, I see myself as a crushed reed and a smoking wick, and that's on a very good day. And we read here that Messiah won't cast those off. And so what do we see in the, in the ministry of Jesus? Well, let me ask you, what did we just see in the ministry of Jesus in this chapter? A man with a withered hand in, in synagogue. And Jesus could easily have just said, could whisper to him, just see me tomorrow. And he'll take care of it the next day. And not had the Pharisees have a new thing to hate him for. Did he? What did he do? He healed him right then and there. Why? Because he doesn't crush, he doesn't uh, break a crushed reed or get rid of a smoking wick. Because he's ministering to the hurt people. Because he's showing what? What was the thing he told the Pharisees to study that they wouldn't study? Hosea 6.6, I don't want sacrifice, I want mercy. And that's what he's showing. And they don't. So this is the picture of Jesus. So friend, I, I just want to encourage, if anyone has stayed away from Jesus because you just think you're too nothing, your, your background is too dark, your, your, your problems are too many, your brokenness is beyond any hope, oh, then, then you're just the person who should come to Jesus. Because he doesn't break a smoking, a, a crushed reed. He doesn't throw out a smoking wick. You're just the sort of person he came for. Come to Jesus. And he continues to do that. He, he heals all the sick. This is his ministry. Until he brings out judgment into victory. Yes, the time will come when he will come with horses and swords, and he will smash the enemy and set up the kingdom of God. He's going to do that. That's not what he's doing now. Now is this ministry of mercy and of outreach and of calling, as we've been singing this morning, assuming you've, you've been here from the start. This is what this is about, his call, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Oh, there it is twice. The first verse and the last verse, Gentiles, Gentiles. Isn't that interesting? These Jewish leaders think that they're going to do a big thing by destroying Jesus, and they do indeed do a big thing. What do they do? Viewed one way, they open the door for the Gentiles, to which all of us should say, yay, (laughs) because what are all or most of us? We're Gentiles. And there, the Jewish people's rejection of Jesus opened the door for this mercy to the Gentiles and the Jewish Gentile church. So, um, that is the ministry of of Jesus, and and the Gentiles will hope in his name. And in this you see God's call. You see, as I told you, in each of these three sections, there's a troubling response, a troubling response, and an invitation. A troubling response, a troubling response, and here is the invitation. He's come for the crushed reeds, the smoking wick, for the Gentiles. Rejected and disregarded. And I tell you, I tell you, the power structure looks at you in terms of what you're worth to them. Just like Jesus doesn't. He looks with mercy. What a wonderful Savior. Amen? So let's talk even more about what Jesus will do. We're under number two, I, th- I think you know. Look at, look at Scripture. I'll be reading from the LSB, but turn back to Isaiah 11, and we'll see even more light on what Matthew's saying here. Isaiah 11 says, A shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of Yahweh will rest on him. Oh, the same thing we read here in verse 18, quoting uh, Isaiah 42, When the Spirit of Yahweh will rest on him. Who is this then? Well, this is the Messiah from the line of David, a shoot from the stem of Jesse, a branch from his roots. The spirit of Yahweh rests on him. And verse 3 says, he will not judge by what his eyes see. Verse 4, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with uprightness for the afflicted of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will put the wicked to death. Well, this is just what we read in this section then. This is part of the work of the Messiah, to bring justice by way of judgment, by way of judgment of the wicked enemies of God and vindication of God's suffering servants. 
So in that day, verse 11, 10, sorry, in that day, the nations will seek the root of Jesse, who will stand as a standard for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. So you see, again, this is not the mystery that Messiah would have a ministry to the nations. The Old Testament says that to the Gentiles, and he would bring judgment to the Gentiles, just as chapter 42 will say, and just as Matthew quotes here. I skip way ahead to what may be the fifth servant passage, Isaiah 61. Jesus quotes this, Isaiah 61. And here's this same note again, Isaiah 61, verse 1. The Spirit, in this case, the servant speaks. The Spirit of the Lord Yahweh is upon me because Yahweh has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. And who are the afflicted? The crushed reeds, the smoking wicks. Folks like us, friend, folks like us. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, not to cast them off, to proclaim release to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of Yahweh, and that's his first coming, and the day of vengeance of our God, that's his second coming, to comfort all who mourn. So you see, this is what he's going to do. This is what the Old Testament said. This is what their Old Testament said, and they didn't see it. And I just, I I, I say again to you, when Jesus reproached them, whether it's the disciples on the road to Emmaus or the Jews in John 5, he didn't say to them, you know, I can't blame you. It's really difficult to see me in the Old Testament. It takes a special kind of lens that, you know, you only have after Pentecost. He didn't say anything like that. He says, how could you not see it? You know, when you get before God and you're on trial and you look at the accusing uh, dock, you know who's going to be standing there? Moses, accusing you for not believing in me. So how will he do it? How will he bring this all together? Turn to chapter 52, 13, the fourth uh, servant song. I say servant song, that's what one has, has called it. Uh, they're not necessarily songs, I should say passage. It's force of habit, sorry. The fourth servant passage. Isaiah fifty-two thirteen. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Oh, that sounds lovely. And then there's this jarring change in verse 14. Just as many were appalled at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of man. This high exalted servant of Yahweh becomes marred and disfigured and the Jews have something to do with it. Where did I get that? Many will be appalled at you, my people. Hmm. And, and, but there's more. Look at verse 15. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Oh, that's not Jews. From what the Jews do to him, he will sprinkle, and that's a word used of what the priests do, sprinkling blood. He will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him for what had not been told them they will see. And what they'd not heard, they will understand. And it's going to be a staggering message. Just keep reading. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of Yahweh been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. He had no stately form or majesty. It wasn't a a campaign of winsome, charismatic personality and, and tricks and publicity. No, no, not at all. He was... uh, No former majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and forsaken of men, but we've seen not by God. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our peace, our peace, fell upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We've all gone astray. God lays our transgression on him. And like a lamb that is led to slaughter, verse 7, like a sheep is silent before shearers, so he did not open his mouth. It wasn't a loud, noisy Uh, a campaign. He came to preach, live, fulfill, die. And not just die, verse 10, but Yahweh was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. He placed his his soul as a guilt offering. But then he says in verse 10, he will see his seed, he'll prolong his days, and the good pleasure of Yahweh will succeed in his hand. He will die, but he'll live. 
What is, what is the, the one word that means dying and then living again? It starts with an R? Resurrection. And that's what this verse points to. He will be resurrected. And he will see his seed, and the good pleasure of Yahweh will succeed in his hand. And what is that? Well, we read about it earlier. Bringing justice to the nations. Bringing the kingdom over all the planet and transforming this world and the kingdoms of man into the kingdom of God. That's the good pleasure of Yahweh. He will do it. And what's the key to him doing it? Pouring out his soul to death. Why? Because the, what is the cause of all the misery and discord and sin in the world? Well, I said the word. It's sin. And he alone. I tell you what. Joe Biden can't fix this. Donald Trump couldn't have fixed this. Ron DeSantis wouldn't fix this. There is no human leader because they're all fallen sinners just like you and me. But this servant of the Lord, he does. He lives perfectly righteous. God's delighted in him. And he offers himself as an atonement for sinners. And in that, he brings the key to transforming the world and bringing a new creation. And so God says, verse 12, I will give him a portion, I'll give him spoil, because he poured out his soul to death. That is how he brings justice to the Gentiles, and they will hope in his name. That's how he will bring in the kingdom of God. Not by a political campaign, but by preaching, living, dying, rising again, ascending to the right hand of the Father. So that's what we read here, Jesus calling. As we've sung and we've sung, Jesus calling. And Jesus still calls, and amid all of the hatred of man, God still loves Jesus, he's still delighted in Jesus, he still picks Jesus, and he still calls us to Jesus. Even the Gentiles, he calls to hope in his name. Many of us have hoped in his name. Some of us have not. Why would you not? What possibly keeps you from hoping in Christ's name? From repenting of your sin and trusting in him? Because the key to life and peace is the Jewish Messiah who the Jews rejected and who will bring life to any repentant Jew and any repentant Gentile. So the key uh, for all of us is uh, where we saw it in, in, in uh, let's see, whoop, I get myself situated here in verse 18. Unbelievers want to destroy Jesus. They want to get rid of him. They don't want to think the truth about Jesus. They suppress the knowledge of God in Jesus. But to God, he's precious. He's his beloved. He's his chosen. To believers, he is precious. He's beloved. He's their choice. Their souls delight in him. And so, if you never have, I urge you to behold who Jesus is. To turn from your sin to Jesus and to hope in him alone. He will not break the crushed reed. He will not throw out the smoldering wick. Come to him and know God's mercy in him. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this, your word of Christ, through Christ, pointing us to Christ. We thank you so much for this truth. We thank you that despite the hatred of our race, the human race, despite that, you still call. You still bring to Christ you still put the gospel out to all. And I would just add a, another prayer for any here who is not yet, for whatever reason, it's not a good reason. Lead that person to see Jesus as you see him and come running to Christ in repentant faith to find forgiveness in life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.